0: Hey there, guys. Welcome back to the Paraconnection Podcast. You're here with Shuler, Nate, Ryan, and Kaylee with PILT Paranormal. And today, we have a special guest with us, Sylvia Schultz. We've had her on a couple of times, and she's going to be sharing some new experiences and locations with us that she's investigated, along with a possible sneak peek of a project she's working on. So I'm pretty excited about that. Nate, Kaylee, Ryan, you guys excited to get into this podcast? super excited let's do
1: this i didn't talk to her last
0: time so oh yeah yeah that's very true ryan didn't have that experience so today we're going to change that so let's go ahead and get this podcast rolling on and get sylvia schultz on board with us here we go all right so we got sylvia on the line with us sylvia how are you doing I am doing
2: fantastic. Work's over for the day and the evening stretches out with unlimited possibilities.
0: Awesome, awesome. Yeah, that's how we feel about it too. You know, once you get off that time clock, I mean, it's a lot better. (laughs) (laughs) So Sylvia, since we last spoke, I'm sure you've had a lot of adventures and endeavors going on and uh, we'd love to touch up a little bit on those with you. But to start off today's podcast, we were kind of hoping you could elaborate a little bit more on how you got into the paranormal, and with your psychic and sensitive abilities, how you became comfortable with it, and you knew what was really going on. Okay,
2: well, I'd be happy to share that with you. People always love an origin story. Oh, yeah. The origin stories of ghost hunters are just as interesting as anything else. Absolutely. Um, I have to disappoint your listeners right off. I did not grow up in a haunted house. (laughs) <laughs> I did not grow up seeing dead people I still don't consider myself very psych I, don't, I don't, don't consider myself psychic at all but I do realize that the more I'm doing this and the more I expose myself to these situations the more sensitive I get and I'll talk about that in just a little bit so how I got into the paranormal well <laughs> when I was Oh, let's see. My, my sister had just been born. She was an infant, so I must have been eight or nine years old. And uh, my parents took us on a road trip to where my mom had gone to college. And it was out in the country. It was in Carrollton, Missouri. So my dad is one of those dads that would just jump in the car and just like drive straight through the night and not stop at a hotel or anything. We were not big hotel people.
0: Oh, man. So,
2: <laughs> <laughs> so he just bundled the kids in the back seat, and my mom hopped in the passenger seat. My dad hopped in the driver's seat, and away we went, headed west. So, um, we, the kids, just crashed out in the back seat. We were just completely insensible as soon as the car started. We were just out because it was so late when we left. So, it was me and my sister and my infant sister and our cousin Anthony. And we woke up. All the kids except for the infant woke up in the back seat in the car. We had just been allowed to sleep in the car. Nobody woke us up to move us or anything. Uh, so it was the three of us, like in a big puppy pile in the back seat. And I woke up first and I looked out blearily out of the back seat window and I realized that my parents had put up a little tent next to the car and that's where they were sleeping with, with my infant sister. And then it registered on me that we had spent the night camping out in a
0: cemetery. Oh, man.
2: I was eight years old. I freaked out.
0: <laughs> man, I would, too, at that age. I mean, wow. What a twist.
2: <laughs> right? And, um, yeah, it, we, we, apparently, we arrived at the cemetery in the middle of the night, no less. <laughs> it's scary enough waking up in a cemetery and realizing that's where you slept all night. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, an eight-year-old kid, and I was the oldest of the three kids in the back seat, so they all took their cues from me, so we all freaked out. (laughs) Uh, But my dad said very sensibly, now this was before the laws, this was back in the, like, 70s, and this was before the dawn to dusk um, laws, I don't know if it's a law, but the the regulations that cemeteries are only open dawn to dusk, you could do that at that point. You could spend the night in the cemetery and nobody would say a word and you wouldn't get rousted out or anything like that so so that's what my dad did he pitched a tent in a cemetery
3: wow. <laughs> that
2: was my first experience with the the paranormal the the, the hanging out in the cemeteries and i have to tell you at eight years old i was not down with that <laughs> <laughs>
0: Yeah, it's a lot I different.
2: I stories. I just didn't want to be in the middle of one. Man. But the more I, I read obsessively as I was a kid, I, I read voraciously, and I loved anything weird, paranormal, supernatural, anything I could get my hands on, I read. You know, Bermuda Triangle, Sasquatch, UFOs, Missing Time, Time Slips. Chupacabras, anything like that. I just devoured it. Yeah. But I like, kept coming back to the ghost stories. I was terrified of ghosts when I was a kid, but I kept coming back to these ghost stories because the idea of communicating with someone who was freaking dead really appealed to me. Like, what have these people seen? I've always been a big history wonk. So the idea of talking to somebody who lived in a different time in history was just fascinating to me. So as I grew up, I kind of put away the UFOs, but I, was, I kept getting drawn back to the ghost stories because of the history. I was a history major in college, and that is what really draws me, is that historical connection, that living in a different time connection. That's what really grabs me about ghost stories. And that's why I've been so entranced with them for the rest of my life. I have a second stomach for ghost stories. I will devour them wherever I find them. And my best friend is somebody who can tell me a ghost story I haven't heard
0: yet. (laughs) Man. (laughs) Yeah.
2: So when I grew up, I realized that uh yeah i started off i've always loved writing too and i started off writing fiction horror fiction of course and i got to realizing that you know i don't have to make things up i can write books of true ghost stories i can find these stories and i can retell them in my own words i can put my own interpretation and my own spin on them and I am so grateful and so fortunate that people really enjoy that they enjoy my storytelling which I am just beyond grateful for I love sharing these stories I love looking at this history
0: absolutely yeah you know along with the history on that Sylvia it's it's not only like retelling these stories of the deceased people but it's going back in time with the culture traditions even you know laws i mean just comparing from the 70s to now there was a major difference but if we're talking about people that lived in the 1800s that's even more different than 40 years ago if you will
2: yeah yeah exactly (laughs) i'll give you an example now i'm working on a project right now that i I'm not going to talk about it a whole lot because i want it to be a surprise but one of the stories that i'm working on is the story of the donnelly massacre and no one's ever heard of this there have been a couple of books written on them but you can't hardly find them in libraries i work at a library i can find practically anything i ordered half a dozen books all i could find on this Particular incident in history, I have been able to get one of those books.
0: Wow, that's scarce.
2: Libraries just don't own it, and the book came in for me today. (laughs) I'm just so excited to get a hold of it and read it. But um, the uh, the story of the Donnellys. Now, I trust that you'll cut me off if I go over time. When I'm when I'm writing about this, I start off with a disclaimer. I say. Drap in, this is going to get really complicated and really weird. It's a really bumpy <laughs> ride. <laughs> the, the, the Reader's Digest condensed version of it, and this is what you said about different times and different mannerisms in different times really made me think about this. Um, the Donnellys were an Irish immigrant couple who came to Ontario, Canada in the late 1840s. And they brought their Irish heritage with them. They were Catholics and they, they attended a Catholic church and the, the priest, the pastor of the Catholic church got up one day and the priest had, had put together something called the peace society. And there was a later later out branch of that peace society called the Vigilance Committee. And what this peace society did, ostensibly, was to keep peace in the community around Ontario. But they did it by saying, oh, you have to let us into your house to look for stolen property. You have to sign this pledge that you're going to let us just come into your house whenever we want to and look for stolen property if you have it in your house the donnelly's did not sign this place they did not agree with it hmm. and then this priest started got up in the pulpit and started preaching hate against the protestants in the area now the donnelly's had a lot of protestant friends and james donnelly got up in the middle of mass and said this is crap that you are preaching a very unChristian statement right now and from now on my family and I are going to go to the Catholic Church in London, not in Biddles. Oh, so wow. we are going to church, switch churches. We're not going to have anything to do with you. And they felt very strongly about living and let live. I mean, they they were very tolerant. The other interesting thing about the Donnellys is that, and this this just blows my mind, the Ontario Land Company, offered land for people to settle on it was like a homesteading thing you lived on the land for a while you paid rent on it and it was kind of like a rent to own thing the Donnellys knew james knew that he could never afford land so he basically squatted on 100 acres
0: oh wow <laughs> wow get it done one way or the other
2: <laughs> and then <laughs> and then it was the 100 acres were owned by an absentee landlord who eventually ended up selling that property. And the guy who actually owned it showed up. Oh, dang. (laughs) And wanted his his land. And James Donnelly was like, no. (laughs) He's like, I have spent 10 years working this land, farming it, clearing it, i i want this hundred acres it's mine i put in the work no matter that i don't actually own it i put in the work for it.
3: so they went to court
2: (laughs) they went to court and the court actually ruled that james donnelly could have this the northern 50 acres of this plot
0: right
3: wow oh he didn't pay any money for it i'm glad he got something for it A lot of times, you'd just be like, tough luck, buddy.
0: Well, that's today's society yeah. for you.
3: <laughs> so, so the, the other, the, the second 50 acres, the southern 50
2: acres, was supposed to go to this other guy, not the absentee landlord, but somebody who rented that land from him. Uh, Patrick somebody. Um, Patrick Mayer, I think. And, uh, yeah, the... the patrick and james absolutely beat tested each other because james wanted the whole hundred acres and patrick wanted the whole hundred acres because that's what he was renting. understandable <laughs> so yeah. yeah so it eventually culminated in they, they both went to a logging bee and they both the, the words were exchanged nobody knows how this fight started but um They both picked up um, big logging implements called hand spikes. They're like railroad spikes, but like 10 times as big. And blows were exchanged. And it ended up with Patrick lying on the ground with a hand spike through his left temple. And he died two days later. Wow. That made James a murderer. So he went on the lam. He disappeared. Nobody could find him. Constables kept showing up at his house. And his wife, Johanna, and his three eldest boys were like, we have, we have no idea where he is. Eh, I don't know. I haven't seen him. I, don't know. I have no idea where he is. Well, during all this time, James was ha- hiding in plain sight. It's, it's, sharp-eyed observers may have noticed that there were two women working in the Donnelly fields. One was Johanna Donnelly. The other was James, dressed up in one of his wife's dresses.
3: Wow. <laughs> I'm surprised he fit in that dress. <laughs> <laughs> Man. But
2: winter's in Octavia were cold, so he turned himself in, and he was sentenced to die. He was sentenced to hang in September, and Johanna got up a, 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 a um, petition, and everywhere she went, she had somebody sign it, so it was eventually commuted to um, set seven years in prison instead of hanging, oh, so wow. she saved his life, yeah, so long story short, there's so much more detail in this story, but everybody hated the Donnellys. The Donnellys were blamed for, like, everything, the Donnellys um, set up a stagecoach, it started doing well, people got butthurt about the stagecoach doing well and everybody just blamed the donnellys for everything that went wrong if a barn burned down if a constable uh, got attacked if if somebody got pushed around everybody blamed the donnellys
3: huh
2: and that really went back to Um, the the Irishmen who settled in that area of Ontario brought that Protestant-Catholic feud that had started 200 years before James Donnelly was even born. They brought that feud to Ontario. And the Donnellys just got caught up in the middle of it. Wow. Yeah, so...
0: You know, so Wrapping it up. <laughs> yeah. Sylvia, well, what really kind of makes my brain tick here is like all those people, the locals in that area, they they would blame that family for all the negative things going on, but yet there was a petition signing to save the life of the husband. It's just like, how are you going to want to save his and life but then okay. point your finger? <laughs> yeah.
2: yeah, it was just amazing. And so in on January fifteenth, 1880, um, there was a guy named Patrick Ryder, his name, nickname was Grouchy, was no <laughs> idea why, but Grouchy Ryder's barn burned down. And everybody blamed the Donnellys. Even though the night the barn burned, the Donnelly boys, there were five boys in the family, and they were all out at a wedding. They had a completely airtight alibi, but everybody blamed the Donnellys. Even Grouchy Ryder admitted, he said, I've been neighbors with the Donnellys for 30 years. Never had a problem with them. But the reason I set constables after them was because everybody blames it always. Oh, my <laughs> gosh. So I'm like, oh, hey, prince of a guy, right? <laughs> so long story short, this, per- this Catholic priest got up in his pulpit again, and he said... The Peace Society is going to go after these wrongdoers, and I am going to put up $500 as a reward for bringing these never-do-wells to justice, even though they hadn't done anything. So members, members of the Vigilance Society met at a schoolhouse several miles away, got all liquored up, and went to the Donnelly Farmhouse. And... Killed James, Johanna. They killed Bridget Donnelly, who was Johanna's niece, who was visiting from Ireland. And they killed Tom Donnelly, one of the sons. They, sne- they snuck into the house. They handcuffed Tom while he was asleep and then woke him up. Wow. And James woke up, the father woke up and came into the kitchen, saw his son handcuffed. He's like, What have you got against us now? He just lost his temper. He just, like, what now? What now? And Tom held up the handcuffs and held up his handcuffs wrists and he goes, yeah, I'm handcuffed because this guy thinks he's smart. And the 30 guys busted into the house with farm implements. Um, Tom made it as far as the front door and somebody met him at the door with a pitchfork, stabbed him in the chest several times. He was still alive when he was dragged back into the kitchen, and somebody said, smack that guy in the head with a shovel a couple of times. They stove his head in, and that's exactly what they did. They left the four adults for dead. There was a 13-year-old boy who was visiting who was supposed to help with the farm chores. He hid under a bed, and these attackers poured coal oil over the bed and lit it on fire, not realizing that the kid was underneath it. Wow. And then the attackers all left to find the Donnellys that lived at another house. And the 13 year old kid, uh, Johnny Connolly, or Johnny O'Connor, um, came up from under the bed and ran to a neighbor's house barefoot, crying. And he, he was able to testify about all this. And the people, the Donnellys who did survive the massacre, also testified no one was ever brought to justice for this this massacre
0: five people
2: dead the house burned down five people dead there was another donnelly brother that was shot at a different house died within five minutes of having his chest filled with buckshot no one was ever tried for that crime so yeah you talk about different attitudes
0: Wow. Yeah, that's a yeah. way different attitude right there, Sylvia. To the extreme. <laughs> wow. <laughs>
2: Crazy. <laughs> so yeah, we've gotten way, 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 way off track. But yeah, you wanted to, to hear about experiences I've had as an investigator, and I will definitely share some with you. Um, as I said, I believe very strongly that I am getting a little more sensitive. The more I do this, the more I go into places that I know are active.
3: How do you feel that you are sensitive in that way?
2: Well, it takes a lot of concentration, but I have the sense and I could be completely making this up, too, but I don't think I am. I can ha- I, I can go you always feel like you're making place. it up. <laughs> I'm, I'm humble. I'm not, I'm not all full of myself. I don't, I'm not going to say, I can see dead people. I, I, if I can't, I can't. And I, I can't, so I don't say that. But I can walk into a place that I know has reported activity, and I can kind of feel the energy of the place for a couple of examples. For the first example, um, I've been to the Pollock Hospital at the Peoria State Hospital. The Pollock Hospital was the tuberculosis ward. I've been there countless times. So I'm familiar with it. But still, there's a pervasive sense of... It's a bit of a gloomy place because um, for for most of its history, between the years of 1950 when it opened and 1973 when the entire hospital closed, during those that period of 23 years, there was an average of three to five deaths a day in that building. That land was also the site of two other structures for treating tuberculosis, so ever since 1902, when the asylum opened, people have been dying of tuberculosis on that plot of land for 71 years. (laughs) So there's a lot of residue there. So it's not the most cheerful place. But I have been going into the um, Peoria State Hospital Museum, uh, got to buy one of the cottages, one of the male cottages that's half a block from the the, the Pollock Hospital. And I walked into that cottage for the first time, and the energy was completely different. This was a place, it was a a great big, you, you go through a little hallway, the little entrance porch, and it opens up into this big, beautiful day room. This is where people had... Uh, there were wicker furniture sitting around. There were billiards tables. There were there was places where you could sit and read a book if you wanted to. This was a place for living rather than dying. And this was a place where uh, guys came to hang out. They were they met their friends there. They sat and chatted with their friends there. The energy was so much lighter in the cottage than it was in the pollock hospital i love the pollock i love it but the energy in the cottage is so much different
3: that's really interesting like was it just like it felt playful or just it just felt lighter in general
2: lighter in general yeah i'm not i haven't been in there i've been in there um three times So I haven't really gotten used to whether the energy is playful or just light, but it's definitely a different energy. You can feel that right away as you walk in. Another example is, I had a very interesting experience when I went to the Veliska Axe Murder House. Oh,
3: really? Now,
2: (laughs) yeah. So I walked in, and I was extremely fortunate. I was there with the group, but the group decided to go have dinner before the investigation. So I was allowed to take the key and go in and spend 45 minutes by myself in the Veliska Axe Murder House Wow! as soon as
3: I got there. (laughs) What was that like?
2: That was amazing oh my god it was so cool <laughs> so I went in I knew the story um I I went through the bottom of the house I went upstairs it's a small house it is so tiny um so I went into the house and I I was walking through and I was I was narrating what was going on, narrating my feelings and experiences and everything. And everything was okay for a while, uh, until I got into the attic where the murderer hid until the small hours of the night when he came out and slaughtered everyone in the house.
3: What did you feel when you went in there? What's that? What did you feel when you went in there? Oh well I was I
2: was in the attic and just looking around getting my bearings and the attic is very bare there are a couple of chairs there for investigators to sit there's a couple of toys on the floor for the, you know ghost children to play with and I looked up because I I really believe in investigations and looking everywhere you can and, and what do you smell besides what do you see and feel so I looked up and the the ceiling of the attic isn't finished and you can see if you look up at the ceiling you can see the roofing nails the ends of the roofing nails the points oh really coming through yeah coming through the ceiling and it's just like one every inch there's just this mass of points of nail points right there and i'm 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 five foot four and i kind of had to watch my head in the attic and i said aloud i said man you'd really have to be careful if you were hiding in here in the dark you couldn't stand up too fast you'd really hurt yourself and as soon as i said you could hurt yourself i got this feeling of all right you're done here you you need to leave now oh, and man. i just noped it right out of there. <laughs> I'm like, okay i'm going to leave this attic right now and go to a different part of the house and that's what i did and that feeling went away and i explored the rest of the house and it was it was very interesting because the feeling i got from that house was not a feeling in in the evening it was not a feeling of dread it was a feeling of comfort and safety this was a house where four children were being raised This was a small house. This was packed with love and laughter and playing children. And that's the vibe I got from this house. So I stayed the night there. I slept on the parlor room floor, uh, right next to the bedroom where the two neighbor girls were, were slaughtered. So nothing happened all night. Nobody touched me. I had a camera going. I didn't see anything weird on the camera. So I got up in the morning and got all my equipment together and left the house and I was tasked with returning the key, I was the last person there, so I was tasked with going through and making sure everything was cool and then putting the key where it was supposed to be found by the owners. So I decided to do one more walk through the house. And if you'll remember the story, the the people were slaughtered in the wee hours of the night and it was their neighbor that noticed that everything was really really quiet the next morning and the neighbor came over and tried to knock and couldn't raise anybody and got James Moore's brother to come over and let himself into the house and it was the brother that found eight people slaughtered hacked to death with axes in their beds so when I went in there in the morning the energy was very different than what than it had been the previous night and i think that was because the murders were discovered in the early morning and that psychic residue from that discovery was what i was picking up on that morning the vibe in the house in the morning was way different than at night
3: gotcha wow yeah i can imagine that kind of imprint at that time yeah
2: yeah
1: do do people actually live in that house now what's that do do people actually live I, in, in the house now
2: oh no no um there were people living in the house and um the people that own it now um do not live there so off of the kitchen there's a little pantry And when people actually lived there that pantry had been converted into indoor plumbing that was the bathroom that was right off the kitchen and since the people moved the the, uh, residents moved out and people bought it and have it just for paranormal research um, they tore out that bathroom and restored it to the way a pantry would have looked in 1912 when these murders happened so oh, okay. they've done a little bit of reserva- renovation. There's no electricity in the building except for a an air conditioner in the lower bedroom. And that made it really hard to sleep because the air conditioner kept kicking on and waking me
0: up. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure that was annoying. That was
2: the only problem I had sleeping in this house was because the air conditioner kept kicking on and <laughs> and, and waking me up. Other than that, I didn't have any problems sleeping in the house. It was It was amazing. Nice.
3: Did you have any activity? Um, did you record any activity while you were there? Like any parent, like I, any EVPs or other stuff? I did not get any EVPs
2: at the Veliska house. Uh, if you listen to my podcast, Lights Out, I have put up the Velisca episode. So just... Um, go to sylviaschultz.wordpress.com and click on the lights out tab and the Velisca episode is pretty close to the top Um, I think it's episode 80 okay anyway so you can listen to that Um, another experience that I had and this is kind of similar about three weeks after I went to Velisca, I went to the Sally House in Atchison Kansas now the Sally House is they call it the Sally House because the entity that hangs out there is supposed to be it. It manifests as a seven to eight-year-old girl, and the, the the homeowners that encountered it first named it, nicknamed it Sally. But whatever is in that house is not an innocent little girl. That has been established by the homeowners. That has been established by many, many researchers that have gone in there. Um, so I knew going in that I was not going to pander to this entity. I was not going to refer to it as Sally. I knew better. I knew it wasn't a little girl. I knew it was something a lot worse than that.
3: What sorts of things so did I, um? Sorry. What sorts of things did um? did previous people encounter before you went there?
2: Oh, man. So the homeowners that lived there, um, Deborah Pickman, and I think her husband's name was Tony. Deborah actually wrote a book about it called The Sally House Haunting. Um, Things started off very innocuous. There were teddy bears that would arrange themselves in a circle. And um, when Ghost Adventures went there, they saw a teddy bear moving on its own this entity really likes teddy bears um, that was okay they got used to teddy bears moving on their own and then the activities started ramping up um, the entity would light a candle on the back of the somebody walked into the bathroom that's right off the kitchen on the first floor and There was a candle, like a scented candle, on the the tank, on the toilet. And everyone was like, Did you light this candle? Why is this candle burning unattended? Because they had an infant son in their house. And the mother was like, All right, who lit this candle and didn't tell me about it? And nobody fessed up to it. And everyone was in sight of everyone else. Nobody lit the candle. And the entity lit it. Wow. And. After that, it ramped up even further, and the entity set one of the teddy bears on fire. Oh my gosh! Yeah,
3: this thing was not coming
2: around.
0: Pyromancy. It was, yeah. It
2: was (laughs) was just weird. And this thing was not innocent. It was. It turned out to be very malevolent. Um, It scratched Tony several times, and the pigments finally just moved out. They're like, we cannot handle this. We have an infant son. We're not dealing with this anymore. Um, I don't know if anyone actually lived in the house after the Pickmans moved out. They lived there in the early 1990s. And I don't think anyone actually lives there now. It's furnished, and there's electricity, but I think they just keep it for investigation. Gotcha. Now, when I... When I first started... Thinking about going there, I thought I could dress up in the, the, lore of the house is that in the early part of the 20th century, there was a doctor that lived in the house and a little girl was brought to him. Her mother brought the little girl to him suffering from appendicitis and the doctor knew that he had to operate right away and there was not enough time for the anesthetic to take effect and he did this operation on the kitchen table just really hurriedly and the little girl died during the operation that's the sally Moore. i don't believe it there's no historical record of it which is why i don't believe it if, if i can't prove it through history i call shenanigans on yeah. it. i'm going to say that's just folklore that's just something made up to it to explain this if there's no historical record of it i'm going to discount it So I thought to myself, well, you know, I'll bring a a doctor's jacket, a doctor's lab coat, and I'll see if I can get any uh, reaction that way. And then I learned more about it, and I learned that the Sally story was probably not true. So I'm like, I'm not even going to bother with the jacket, with the lab coat. I'm not going to take any crap from this entity i'm just i'm gonna i'm gonna call it out i'm not gonna provoke because i don't do that but i'm i'm going to let it know that i'm not going to take any guff from it so i was very no nonsense the whole time when i i decided before i went in i was not going to take any crap I was just going to be completely no nonsense the whole time i stepped into that house and the energy was the best way I can describe it is it was sullen hmm. it was it was pouting the energy in the house was pouting really hmm. Really. it was very strange I've never felt anything like that um so and I did get a couple of EVPs from the sally house what kind um, of did you the, get- the energy reacted very very well to dowsing rods so I started off with the dowsing rods in the kitchen, and I got out my rods, and there were some investigators there that, this was their first investigation, I'm like, holy crap, your mm. first investigation ever, and it's at the Sally house, oh my god, what are you thinking? <laughs> so I explained the dowsing rods to these investigators, and this is also a lights-out episode, and you can hear the EVP if you listen to the episode. And I'm in the kitchen, and I'm explaining the dowsing rods. And I did that for people who are listening to Lights Out, who may not know what that entails. So, and I always always explain it to the entities that I'm working with, too. Here's what I expect from you. And I was even more (laughs) no-nonsense with this entity than I usually am. I'm usually kinder than that. But I said, all right, you are going to put these rods apart for no, and you're going to cross them for yes, this is how we're going to do it. Do you understand me? Have you got that? And I heard a growled no, and then I heard a whispered no, right before the dowsing rods went way apart. I mean, as far apart as they were touching my shoulders. So that's a no answer. And I heard an EVP no, right before the dowsing rods swung apart and no.
0: Wow, Sylvia. <laughs> so, <It was>
1: amazing. <laughs> so, so we know that they call it Sally, but do they actually know, or who or what the force is? They think it's a demon. Do they know like what kind of demon, like the name of the demon? No,
3: no,
2: they do not know its name. They don't even know exactly what type it is. It's just probably demonic.
1: <laughs> and, they're, they're, and they're thinking there's just one like forced there There's like no other ghost cool. or like yeah multiple
2: no no from all the research i've done it's just the one entity but it's a nasty one i mean i don't i'm not zach Megan's. i'm not going to go around calling everything i encounter a demonic entity i think they're very very rare i think they're very far and few and far between But they are out there and I do believe that there is something in the Sally House that is deeply unpleasant. Now there's another story that I tell in Lights Out. There's a a story connected to the Sally House. I started off my weekend. I, I. crammed everything I could possibly do (laughs) into this weekend. The Sally house is a six hour drive for me. So I'm like, man, I'm gonna make a couple side trips. I'm gonna do everything I can. Yeah. Cram everything I can into this weekend. (laughs) So on my way down, I had to go through Springfield. That was the best course for me to take was going through Springfield, Illinois and then heading west to Atchison, Kansas and there's a wonderful group in Springfield that meets once a month called Prairie Land, Prairie Land Paranormal Consortium and they're good friends of mine and this happened to be a weekend that they were meeting. I said great I'm gonna hang out at your meeting for a little while and the the person in charge uh, Carl Jones asked me to he's like hey do you have any talks you can give? I was like yeah sure let's let's give a talk. I mean you guys were at one of my talks so whenever anyone asks me to give a a talk on the peoria state hospital i'm happy to do that so carl's like yeah why don't you tell us what's going on with that so i did and i said may i go first because i'm in the middle of a road trip and i have to get on the road i'm heading to the sally house tonight and carl his eyes got wide and he said you need to talk to larry because he has had a lot of experience there and he knows a lot of people who have been there and he said, be careful. So I got to talk to Larry and Larry's like, yeah, you need protection when you go there. Be very, very careful. He said, I know people who live a block away and have paranormal activity in their house. And he said, I have known several people who have been to the Sally house and then have gotten into bad car wrecks afterwards. So he said, I, I said, I have, I have my protection tea. I have my crystals i have my white light visualization i'm ready i promise i will be careful but i I think i'm ready so he said just please please be careful i promised him i would so i get there and when i go to an investigation especially a place i know that's going to have negative energy i make myself a tea i brew a tea with water that sat out under a lunar eclipse and I put in very strong herbs like sage and comfrey and nettle and, and cinnamon and big dollop of honey in there because honey is a very strong sweetener and it's, it's uh, antibacterial and it's, it's really good stuff. So I make myself this tea and when I drink it I do this visualization of the full moon and that beautiful pure white light and i imagine that water that's been soaking under the full moon i imagine that going into my body and filling suffusing every cell in my body with these strong herbs and that white light of the full moon and that is my protection ritual before i go into a place like this so i get to the sally house I take my mason jar out of my ghost hunting bag, and you guys have all had tea before, right? Yeah.
0: Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. Nothing
3: like this that though. This tea, this tea, had gelled. Oh.
0: What?
2: It was the consistency of thick syrup.
3: How much honey? How much I've honey never was in there? That happen before. <laughs>
2: It was crazy. I choked about a third of it down and it tasted fine, but I could not get past the texture of it.
3: Now, did you make it like, did you let it sit for longer? Like, do you know I like get sure it did. right away? I made
2: it right before I left. I made it right before I left on this road trip. So it had cooled, of course, but it hadn't sat in the jar for more than 12 hours. It was less than 12 hours that it had been in there. Probably about a six hour drive, it had probably been in the jar for about seven hours.
3: Is that normally, like how long you leave it for? Like yeah. Like at other investigations and it's never done that before?
2: Exactly.
0: Wow. Yeah, without some type of natural, you know, process of it turning into a gelatin, I mean, obviously yeah. that stands out, Sylvia. <laughs>
2: Yeah, there were no herbs in there that would have caused it to gel. There was no aloe vera. There was no chia seeds. There was nothing in there that could have caused that gelling effect.
0: And this happened before so you got I to didn't... the location, right?
2: Uh, no, I was at the location. Okay. And and we were about to start the investigation. I said, oh, hey, I need to drink my tea. And I got it out, and I was just like, "Ah." Oh. No. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, so I didn't drink it all. I only drank about a third of it. So I did not have that internal protection. And the next day it was a Sunday. And I went to a couple more interesting haunted places. I went to the Gore Psychiatric Museum. I went to, um, oh, where else? Oh, the Patty Museum. These are upcoming Lights Out episodes that I'll be posting pretty soon. I uh, went to Mount Morris Cemetery in St. Joseph, Missouri, and it was a, just a beautiful, wonderful, sunny, summer, late spring Sunday, and it was just relaxing and wonderful. I got to see a lot of fun stuff, and I ended up staying so late at the Glore Psychiatric Museum that it was dusk by the time I headed home, and my GPS did not take me on a a, a big highway, like a, an interstate highway, instead, it took me home via back roads, which is it, wow. at about 10.30 that night, I hit a deer. Oh, what? Wow. Did about $4,000 worth of damage to my car.
0: Wow, Sylvia. Yeah. Jeez. That really makes you think that the lore behind the whole negative energy, you know, and causing wrecks, I mean, come on, that's evident Uh at that point. Yeah. (laughs) Wow. It
2: could have been a coincidence, but I don't think so. I have done a lot of traveling on a lot of back roads. Yeah. And, yeah.
0: I mean, what are the chances that, that it would happen, you know, that night? Maybe not, maybe the next day or a week or a month. It, it, but...
2: <laughs> it, it, it wasn't even deer season. It wasn't even fall. It wasn't even the rut. This was late May.
0: Yeah. Yeah, and from personal and experiences. I just
2: kind of ran out and just jumped at my car. And I, I texted Carl when I got home. I said, tell your friend Larry that the Sally House claimed another victim. I said, I'm fine, but my car's borked.
0: Man, and that's what's important is that you were safe out of that whole thing but i mean still you know four thousand dollars of damage it's that doesn't feel good either (laughs) right
2: right sucked
0: so sylvia (laughs) i'm never
2: going to the sally house again i would love to go back to i am never going to the sally house again
0: (laughs) (laughs) with the sally house i personally have one more question i'll let the other guys kind of chime in real quick but I'm curious if you have an answer or if you've heard anything or read. Is there an origin to the demonic entity that's allegedly there of where it came from?
2: That's a really tough question to answer. One of the people who rented it after the Pikmans was into uh, the occult there is a spray painted well it's it's mostly been sandblasted away but there was a um a pentagram spray painted in black on the basement floor Hmm. yeah and across from that underneath the body of the house underneath the kitchen um there is kind of a a bricked up area like a crawl space But part of the bricks have fallen away, and you can look in there, and it it looks creepy AF. (laughs) It really does, it looks like a portal to hell. (laughs) Um, And there have been investigators, I watched one of the um, the YouTube um, videos on this, and a couple of investigators, and I have no idea what possessed them to do this, pun intended, but they brought a Ouija board down there. And one of the guys that was Sitting there, playing with his hands, or with his fingers on the planchet, was also doing the Estes method, where you put ping pong balls and tape them over your eyes, and you you put headphones on so you, the sound is blocked out. He even had a, a um, like a breathing mask on to block out any smells. He had no sensory input whatsoever except for his the fingertips on the planchet. This was, I think, an incredibly foolish thing to do.
0: Yeah.
2: (laughs) (laughs) There were three other investigators down there, two guys on the camera and the other guy on the other side of the planchette. So he had other people down there with him, but that got real freaky real fast. Um, The guy was reacting. He never said anything, but he was reacting like he was... Being touched, he was reacting like he was seeing things and flinching away from them. It was just really bizarre. So, I with the with the pentagram on the floor and the um, there was evidence of animal sacrifice down there too. And that's why that renter got kicked out. (laughs) Wow. But yeah, without, with all of that, that I think was a reaction to something already being in there. And I think the renter was trying to summon that entity further into the house. Okay. I don't know the origin of that demonic entity. It seems to have been there when the Pickmans moved in. I don't think it has anything to do with the doctor that lived there. I don't think it has anything to do with the little girl who may or may not have died on the table. Gotcha. Uh, I do believe in demons. I do believe in demonic presen- presences. Uh The lore of this house is that the little girl died during the appendectomy. And they make a big deal of her last conscious moments were of a man hurting her terribly. And then she died. So maybe maybe something like that actually happened. There is no historical record. Yeah. But maybe so many people have told this story that it has created some sort of thought form yeah. like a tulpa yep. maybe that that lore has just taken on a life of its own and whatever malevolent entity happened to be in the area kind of glommed onto this this lore
0: and made it Anything like a,
2: yeah.
0: yeah and made it like a reality Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, that's what I've also believed with other stories too, Sylvia, such as like Slenderman. You know, Mm -hmm. Slenderman itself may not be a real entity, you know, but who's to say that there's not a demonic entity that is real and it can take the form on of. Yeah, exactly.
2: Yeah.
1: Um, Okay. I know that I've seen like a. A documentary about that house and mm-hmm. there was a supposedly a picture of, a, of an older gentleman that mm-hmm. they had taken or someone had taken where he was sitting and like two of the children were in front of him and they had suspected that he was the one that like went into the house to kill them.
2: Okay. Um... as much as I love history <laughs> yeah I have a lot of things that I research I am not very well versed in my, my thing is history more than true crime I'm interested in the actual things that happened um, yeah. I am not very good at puzzling out the threads of the stories of true crime yeah I do know that there were a lot of suspects, a lot of suspects for these murders,
3: okay. I do
2: know that no one else, no one was ever found that could actually, that they could actually pin these murders on. It is theorized that the murderer was actually someone who hopped a train. There is a train tracks that runs very close to the house. Freight trains go by there all the time, and it's possible. There were other axe murders at that time in the early 1900s, around 1912. One of them happened in Monmouth, where I went to college, and it's theorized that it was the same guy just riding the rails and hopping off every once in a while to commit an axe murder. Hmm. So if that's the case, then who knows who it was? But I do know that these people, these townspeople, one of them was a minister, I think. Um well, all of these people in the town that were accused, none of them it was it was never able to be proven that any of them did it.
1: Okay.
2: I'm sorry that's not a very satisfactory answer but
1: no I, I just I, I, I don't
2: do, I don't do crime. Yeah
1: no I, I understand. <laughs>
2: yeah.
1: Did you say that everybody was asleep when they got killed?
2: Yes. That's the thing. That is, I think, why there was such a feeling of peace in the house all evening. This was, as I said, this is a place of love. This is a place where a a couple was raising their young children. And that was the last thing all these people knew. There were two little neighbor girls, friends of Mary's daughter. There were three sons and a daughter. Um, they were friends. They got tucked into bed. They were cared for just as much as the the children of the family were. And these parents tucked their guests into bed. They tucked their children into the bed, and then they went to bed themselves, and everyone fell asleep, knowing that they were cared for and loved. And they never woke up. Hmm. The The only victim that may have been conscious Um, The killer came out of the attic and attacked the parents first, then went into the children's bedroom and slaughtered all the children, and these were all axe blows to the face. Then he went back through the parents' room, down the stairs, and went into the kitchen and made himself a sandwich. And as he was doing that, he heard a small noise from the bedroom off of the parlor, which is where the two neighbor girls were, Ina and Lena Stillinger, and it is they found the younger girl and i think that was lena i don't remember they found the younger girl kind of halfway off of the bed with a defensive wound on her hand Mm. and they think that she woke up made the noise got the killer's attention and he realized, oh crap, there are two other people. (laughs) There are other people in the house that are still alive. I need to go kill them too. So Lena was the only one who may have been even vaguely conscious of what was going on. Everyone else just woke up dead. So they, they didn't even know anything was happening. So there was no feeling of terror. There was a feeling the next morning that I picked up on of, um, deep despair in the house, but that was a result of the neighbor knocking on the door and finding no one answering and the brother coming over and coming in and finding everyone. So that wasn't, that was not necessarily terror and being attacked. This was despair. Oh, crap. This has already happened.
1: Yeah. So, okay, so my, I have a question, but it's kind of, it's like your opinion on something. So, sure. like, yeah,
2: That's uh, all this is. just my opinion. <laughs> so,
1: <laughs> well, because this summer, we, we might do an investigation where we know where two girls were actually killed or murdered. Mm-hmm. So, we're going to go and see, you know, if we can reach out to them. But, I guess do you think that if like a either like a medium or a sensitive is able to, you know, socialize with a spear and say, Hey, like can you give me details about you know who did this to you? Do you think that it's possible for you know a spirit to actually give somebody details about who, you know, killed me or give me more details to actually maybe help solve a case? Or you know what I mean?
2: It has happened before. There has been court testimony from a deceased person that has been accepted and and admitted into court testimony. Um, It's not very usual. (laughs) I can only (laughs) think of two cases where that has happened. But it has happened. It has happened where a murder victim has made contact with the living and said, this is who killed me go get them (laughs) go make sure the police know about this person um so uh i think it would depend on the strength of the spirits i think it would depend on how long they had been dead with these two court cases the murder victim had only been dead for several months even weeks when they made contact with a relative or a friend even and they were still very powerful at that point they were still um uh, still getting used to their afterlife powers i guess um but they were still conscious enough and hadn't drifted away into whatever it is that's waiting for us after we die they were still um Compost meant enough to make contact and say, This is who did it. Please have the police investigate them. Oh, okay. So I guess it would depend on how much time had passed.
1: So you think, like, the sooner the better, bait, you're thinking?
2: Oh, definitely. Oh, yeah. Hmm.
0: Okay. Now, Sylvia, with those two cases, were there actual physical, real world evidence that came into play to justify those? spirit allegations.
2: Yes. Yeah. Um, one of them happened in the 1880s, I think, and it was a daughter who had been in an abusive relationship with her husband and her husband killed her. And uh, that's right. It's coming back to me now. I don't remember names of this. I'm sorry. I can't give you the names, but um, she died and everybody knew she had died and the um there was a wake it was the 1880s so the body was laid out in the parlor and all that sort of stuff and the husband was just fussing over the body and oh 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 my wife is dead oh no and he had wrapped a scarf around her neck and her mother said something about oh let me take this scarf off and the husband was like "No, no no don't do that just leave the scarf on there which was kind of weird And the daughter appeared to her mother several days after she was buried, after the daughter was buried, and said, my husband strangled me. And uh, the novelist Sharon McCrum actually wrote a book using this ghost story as the premise for her book. Um, And she was like, yeah, my husband strangled me. I want you to dig me up and prove it. And they did, they exhumed the body and they unwrapped that scarf the the, the um, oh it's kind of like a silk scarf not not a woolen scarf or anything like that but like a, like a, a silk scarf and they took the scarf off from around her neck and there were bruises and the the neck was just really loose her neck had been broken wow and her husband was trying to hide it in the coffin when she was being waked and she was on display by putting the scarf around her neck and the other case happened in some big city. I don't remember whether it was Chicago or Detroit. I don't think it was Chicago. There was some um, big enough city to have an immigrant population. And there was a Latina girl who uh, had fallen in with kind of the wrong crowd. And she worked at an office building and she had a couple of friends, work friends, you know. And she had this guy that she was going out with who ended up killing her. Hmm. And nobody could figure out who did it. Uh, they had very little to go on. There were very few clues to go on at the crime scene. And this Latina woman, her ghost appeared to one of her work friends, another girl. Uh, I think she was white. I don't think she was uh, Latina, but the Latina appeared to her and said it was my boyfriend so and so who killed me and there had been the only clue that was at the house was at the crime scene was that some of this girl's jewelry was missing and this guy was two-timing her just using her as a bit of fluff on the side and he stole her jewelry and gave it to his real true girlfriend wow and that's what the ghost said she said go and find my jewelry he gave it to his girlfriend so that's how that case was solved
0: wow that one yeah. that, that's, that's insane to say the least you know for the second one you know that really stands out to actually go look for people that are living looking for yeah. specific jewelry that the average person wouldn't know about you know being a part of the deceased, and then it is. That
2: was much, much
0: later. That was in the 60s or 70s. Okay, 60s, 70s, wow. Maybe early 80s, but I
2: think it was in the 70s.
0: Wow. Yeah, that's something else, Sylvia. I mean, and to go back on what Ryan's saying, you know, some of these investigations that we're planning on doing for the 2020 year, it's these locations do have real-life documented, you know, deaths on site, Mm -hmm. and... Most locations that we've gone to, obviously, there's allegations or, you know, old rumors and urban legends and whatnot, but these are actually documented, and it's a new take that we're going to kind of go on with proof, yeah, proof from this world, (laughs) and see if that kind of correlates with the next world, if if you will.
2: And that is so much better for an investigation, because if you know the history, then you can tailor your questions, and you're going to get a much higher... Chance of getting a good EVP. You're getting it. You're gonna have a much higher chance of actual communication.
0: Absolutely. Oh yeah, I totally agree with that. Yeah. Sylvia, I did have one more question before we uh, we come sadly to an end on today's podcast. Okay. Uh, it kind of goes back to your origins of when you were a little girl and when you were first introduced to the paranormal. Can you recall the very first? incident or encounter that you had with the the paranormal that stood out to you or that really made you think differently about life (laughs)
2: yes (laughs) and it, it it happened well okay there there are a couple that i'll tell you about one was much earlier and the other happened when i was an adult this was just several years ago okay um when i was in college i went on an exchange student program and I got to spend two months in England and two months in Italy and I was not a ghost hunter at that point in time and I wish I had been because I could have gone on a ghost tour in London and York and all those all these places oh my god that would have been great but I, I, I was not a ghost hunter at that point in time <laughs> but um, I did absolutely fall in love with Warwick Castle in um, Warwick, England, and there is, in the town of Warwick, which kind of lies below the castle, there is, um, there's a church called St. Mary's, and they have crypts in the basements, and people are buried, and you walk along the floor, and their tombstones set into the floor, and you're walking on dead people, um, but also there are crypts, in the walls kind of like mausoleums and there's a little barred window and you look through just like in an american mausoleum so i was looking through the barred window into one of these crypts and there were three or four beers on each side on the the right and left sides and i I have no idea what this was, I don't know what happened, but I, all of a sudden, and I claim no sensitivity at all, remember, <laughs> <laughs> but all of, a, all of a sudden I got this feeling from the second beer from the bottom of the floor on the left, and it was like somebody was glaring at me saying, you don't belong here, you are alive, we are dead, this is not your place, Get out." I'm like, okay, I'm leaving.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Man.
2: I don't consider that a psychic event. I I like to think that I was sensitive sensitive enough to pick up on something. I still don't know what it was, but it was enough to get me out of that basement. <laughs> yeah. I'll tell you what.
3: <laughs> wow.
2: And then the the second thing that happened. This was. This is only about 10 years ago, about uh, 11 years ago, I was doing research for my very first book of true ghost stories, uh, and I went to a, a haunted theater in Peoria. And this theater was haunted, is haunted, by the ghost of one of the um, directors that used to work there, a man named Norman N. Dean. He died in 1960 when he was in his early 30s. I believe it was cancer. But he loved the theater very, very much. And he has stayed there. And he is a beloved member of the theater family. Everyone knows Norman. Everyone loves Norman. So I was doing research, found out about Norman and decided to go have a visit and uh, got there in the afternoon. I had a split shift from work so I had to leave at some point and go back to work. So I went there and I'm poking around the theater and the, the uh, manager of the theater was kind enough to, she was in the front office and she let me just hang out on stage by myself there was a set being built they were in between productions and there was a board like a light pine board lying across a couple of chairs and i addressed the open air and i i was still a baby ghost hunter at this point in time (laughs) so i didn't have any equipment i didn't know what i was doing but i addressed the open air i said norman my name is sylvia and I'm writing a book about ghost stories, and I have heard that you are a ghost in this theater. I know you loved it very much. And I said, I would love to be able to tell my readers that you're actually here. Can you, can you make a noise for me or something? I said, I have no equipment, so I can't take your picture. But if you make a noise, that would be wonderful. Or move something, that would be great. And I listened. And i didn't hear anything and i looked around i couldn't see anything moving i looked over by the stage door and there was a child's desk sitting by the stage door and there was a stack of plastic shot glasses sitting on the desk so i said aha shot glasses are nice and light it's easy for a spirit a non-corporeal spirit to move so i plucked the top shot glass off of this pile of shot glasses. And I put it right in the middle of this nice, light, pine board. And I said, there you go, Norman. Here's something nice and light. If you could do that for me, if you could move that for me, that would be wonderful. I'd appreciate it. And I looked at the shot glasses. Shot glasses. (laughs) So about that time, there was a theater employee, a volunteer. She was working on the set. So she came up and introduced herself. We started talking and she gave me a tour of the backstage area. I'm like, this is so cool I haven't been backstage in the theater since I was in high school. I mean, this is great Uh, Well, okay college, but uh, she took me on a tour and she was telling me ghost stories about encounters She'd had with Norman and I was just eating it up. This is wonderful So we got all the way around the backstage area and we got back to the main stage area and I said pam thank you so much for the tour i appreciate it but i have to leave and go back to work now and i said norman this has been wonderful i've really enjoyed hearing stories about you but i have to go to work now so this is your last chance if you want to let me know that you're here please do something to let me know and pam said did you hear that and i said no, <laughs> no I didn't. what happened So apparently Norman likes to hang up on the catwalk above the stage. And Pam pointed up to the catwalk and she said, I heard a shuffling up on the catwalk. And I said, Norman, that was wonderful, but I'm sorry, I missed that. Could you do it again, please? (laughs) And Pam just whipped around with her finger pointing up. And sure enough, we both heard rustling on the catwalk. And there was no one up there. So I said, oh, Norman, thank you so much. I heard that. I know you're up there. Thank you so much for letting me know that you're there. I really appreciate it. That was wonderful. So I picked up the shot glass, the plastic shot glass, and I was raised properly. I was raised to put things back where I found them. So I went over to the desk with a pile of shot glasses on it, and the stack of shot glasses was gone.
3: Gone. <coughs> gone. No one else had been there.
2: Wow. No one else was back there. It was just me and Pam. And I looked at Pam and I said, "Did you?" There was. Okay. Um. All right. There was a stack of shot glasses here, <laughs> and then I could see the smile spreading across her face as I talked. I said, this is, this, that stack is where this shot glass came from. I took it off the top of the stack, and now the stack is gone. Did you didn't move that, did you? And she said, no. And I knew that was going to be your answer, because she had been with me the whole time. And she said, that's what Norman likes do. He likes to move stuff. He likes to play tricks. And then she said, to be fair, you did ask him to move the shot glass. <laughs>
3: Shot
2: glasses. <laughs> <laughs> yes. He just moved the whole pile. And I talked to Pam a few weeks later, and she said, that stack of shot glasses never has turned up.
3: Oh, my gosh. Sounds like a show off. <laughs> wow.
2: <laughs> so that was, that was my first experience actually communicating with a spirit. And that was great. That's That's something I'll never forget.
0: That's awesome, Sylvia. Yeah, yeah, you you kind of answered a question I had. I was going to ask, did you think that the shot glasses was that shuffling up on the catwalk? But being that they haven't shown up yet, and I'm sure people's walked up there, it probably wasn't. No, it sounded
2: like somebody's, it sounded like footsteps.
0: Okay, okay, that type of shuffling. Yeah. Okay.
2: Right, yeah.
0: Wow, that, that's interesting. It sounded like
2: somebody leaning with their elbows over the catwalk and kind of shuffling around and moving their elbows around and maybe shuffling their feet a little bit. If someone was watching a play from the catwalk and fidgeting a little bit, that's what it sounded like.
0: Gotcha. Okay. Yeah, I know that would throw me off guard for a minute, especially if it's just two people (laughs) in a big theater area. I mean, come on
2: now. (laughs) Oh, we were both delighted. Man. We, We walked out of there with these huge grins on our faces. I wasn't scared at all. I was just... I was
0: loving it. <laughs> that does sound like a really unique and neat, like awesome experience. <laughs> for
3: sure. Yeah.
0: Did you guys have any more questions for Sylvia? I don't have any.
1: I'm no, good. I don't.
0: Not right off? Well, Sylvia, I hate to say it, but I think our podcast is coming to an end right about now. <laughs>
2: okay. <laughs> yeah,
0: we have, we've had a good time for the podcast here. Uh, before we go off, though... Just like always, if people want to reach out to you, check out your books or, you know, look into the podcast, what would be the best ways for them to reach out to you?
2: The best place to find me is at sylviashultz.wordpress.com and that's S-H-U-L-T-S. If you go to that site, at the top of the page, there are listings, uh, that places you can click for horror fiction, romance fiction, and paranormal nonfiction That's what you're probably going to be looking for. There's also a tab up there that says Lights Out, and if you click on that, it's going to have a list of every single episode with the YouTube link. Lights Out is also a podcast, but I do put pictures behind it and put it up on YouTube just so it's easy to find. But if you're into the podcast instead, it's on. Spotify, and SoundCloud, and iTunes, and Apple, and every anywhere you can find a good podcast. That's, just look for Lights Out with Sylvia Schultz, and you'll find it.
0: Wonderful. So it's not hard to find you at all, then?
2: <laughs> no, no, no. People people surprise me every day. They say, hey, I listen to your podcast. Oh, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely.
0: Absolutely. Again, Sylvia, we can't thank you enough for coming back on and sharing more stories with us and even giving us a little look inside of future projects you have coming out. Seriously. Yeah.
3: (laughs) Yeah, it's always fun listening to what you have to say because you have, like, lots of fun stories. Thank
2: you. I love telling stories, and I love telling stories about ghosts.
0: So do we. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> well Sylvia, you have a wonderful mm-hmm. day and evening and we will most definitely talk with you in the future.
2: Fantastic. Good night, guys.
1: Thanks for having me Bye. on. All right. Thank you.
0: All right guys, another awesome podcast with Sylvia Schultz. I think that went fantastic. What do you think, Nate? Oh yeah, very informative. She's a really nice person. Well, I mean, every time that she comes on, she always has a good story to tell and good experiences. And luckily, Ryan was with us this time. What do you think, Ryan? No, I thought it was good. Pretty good? Yeah. Yeah, I think there's there's quite a few new stories that we didn't get to share and listen to with her last time, especially at the talk, because uh, obviously there's not enough time for all the stories that she has or the experiences. But the one that stood out to me the most was with the demonic entity at the Sally House because for the mere fact that it's portraying as a child and the origin of the entity isn't known, I mean, there, there's just a lot of questions, but with it being so active, to me, that just intrigues me, and it's one of those, like, go-to stories. So that, that one stood out to me a lot. What about you, Kaylee? Do you have any I was, thoughts?
3: I was fascinated by how um, she could sense how different an atmosphere would be when she goes in, even even the, during the different times of the day. Like, when she mentioned the mm-hmm. axe murder. Cabin house. It um, was it a cabin? I can't remember. It's a,
0: house. It's a little bit of both. <laughs> it can be what you want. Yeah. <laughs> so
3: it was kind of neat how she said it seemed really peaceful at night because technically the family was murdered while they were sleeping, and then yeah. in the morning it seemed kind of full of despair.
0: I will say that's a different take. I've I've not heard that theory before, or even you know someone saying that they experienced those type of emotions. You know, considering that there were murders, but there's still some type of positive vibe, which, to, to a point, I think is good, but, you know, still, it's makes you wonder, really does, what the other side has in store. Well, with that being said, I think we're going to go ahead and wrap up tonight, today's podcast, depending on when and where you're listening. Of course, if you guys want to reach out to us with questions, concerns, comments, or you want to get on the podcast or share a topic, you know how to reach us. Go to Google, type in P-I-L-T Paranormal, and you're going to find our Facebook, Instagram, Website and, of course, the podcast. And we're on just about any and every podcast platform you can think of, so it's not too hard to find us. So, uh, yeah, I think that's pretty much it. Of course, thank you guys again for tuning in, and until next time, stay frosty.